Hello, and welcome to the Straight From The Line podcast, where I talk food and cooking with industry insiders. I'm your host, Jason Lynch. Today I'm speaking with Chef Brad Long, owner of Cafe Belong and Belong Catering at Evergreen Brickworks in Toronto. Brad previously did work with Food Network Restaurant Makeover, executive chef of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment for 10 years, where he fed over 20 million people. Brad's one of the most passionate people I've met when it comes to food and where it comes from. Very often, I mean, I'll be talking to somebody in another discipline or a politician or some captain of industry, right, that has done really well in their careers with nothing to do with hospitality. And they'll say, oh, I totally know what you guys do. And you're like, why? How do you know? Oh, I, I worked at the Rathskeller in university. And you're like, you're saying, so you carried around trays of $3 beers and you know exactly what we do in this industry? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, I'm sorry, but that's really insulting. I mean, picking up a tray of beer and distributing it out to people and taking home tips, it gives you an idea how sweaty and stinky and miserable people can be in that scenario. But the rest of all that is about such a complex manufacturing operation. Right? We buy raw materials and we meld them into something else and we wholesale and retail them all within a very short period of time. No other industry does. We don't want to make shoes in the same day as they get the materials. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and your shoes, your materials for your shoes don't go bad. So you don't have risk just by purchasing them too soon. So there's all these, these points of risk in what we do that, that most people have no concept of because, well, I mean, think about home, the grocery store. You, you go in a grocery store and the entire way that the food system has been designed since the 1950s is that you don't want to cook. You don't want to have to understand about food, where it comes from. We'll make it easy for you. You know, we just go home and pop it in the microwave and boom, you got food. Except that process is killing the soil Telling the artisans to grow the stuff, the farmers, the, the people who actually care about it. And, and so it just has its, this dead end. That whole process just comes to an end within the next couple of decades. And you keep saying it to people because I just experienced that by buying stuff and watching so many sectors fall away as you keep going forward. There's so much stuff I can't get from people who were the best at what they did because they just go out of business because they can't stay in this this atmosphere that we have in this industry. So I was somewhere along the line realized that somebody just has to just stand their ground. I mean, it's probably the easiest way to do it. Just stay here and say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to beat up the supply. I, I freak farmers out very often because they just go, I need $5 a pound for this. And you go, okay. And they, they're used to a lot of chefs who handle. We were only taught to handle. Yeah. Um, in fact, the whole ritual at the end of the night and first thing in the morning was always checking all the prices and then buying the cheapest one you can get from your monger or, or your produce guy, right? Mm-hmm. Meat very often was a pressure point. You're always trying to get it cheaper, trying to get it cheaper. And when you're at the place like the ACC, you know, and you're buying for responsible, however you want to put it, for 10 million bucks worth of stuff, you realize that by constantly telling the middleman that you don't want to pay that much money, his only option is to turn around and press the farmer or his, his supply chain to pay them less. Somewhere along you go, Jesus, I'm actually part of killing this business. And so eventually I just started, 
You can't be an idiot. You have to hit your budget. You have to be profitable. You have to survive. The only way you can be sustainable is to be in business next year. And the only way you can be in business next year is to have a profit. So you actually have to be entrepreneurial, capitalistic, ruthless, and profitable. But I've also learned that in that process of capitalism, you don't have to absolutely fuck everybody in your path. Somewhere in there, what you're talking about is an attitude towards capitalism, and with that is married to that is the marketplace. And the marketplace is the easiest one to understand is that we all want cheap food. It's a really big chunk of the money you have in your pocket in your life. So how that goes is you've got to feed, and if you have kids, you've got to feed them too. And so you're always looking for cheap food. But if you're only looking for cheap food, and you're not really paying attention to it, what you end up with is really crappy food. So somewhere in there is the idea that you have to find really good stuff, support it, and balance out what all that costs somehow, which means Canadians, we pay 10 bucks per cap, uh, as stated by all these people who measure it, the UN and everything else, and that's cheaper by a third than most of the other parts of the world. So we have basically set up our system and trained ourselves sort of just short change ourselves in the quality of the food that we have by making it so bloody cheap. And in the process of making it cheap, we're in the cycle where we keep going straight forward on that line, the food starts being scarcer and scarcer. Kill the soil. You know, monoculturing and all the inputs, all that stuff. I, I went to great extent to try and begin to understand the agricultural system. Both organic, biodynamic is my least knowledgeable one, and, and the conventional methods of farming. And, and the conventional methods of farming are essentially just took a 90 degree turn after World War I. And some of it was absolutely necessary, and some of it was actually really smart, and some of it got to stop, and we got to go back to the way we have farmed and, and found foods up until the Edwardian period. We, excuse me, hunted and gathered for 10,000 years. And then we slowly learned how to farm. And uh, really, really, by the time we're at the end of the, um, at the end of the 20th century, so, you know, as the 20th century is kicking in, in late 1890s, early 1900s, we got a really, real high handle on that ye old farming thing, you know, the biodiverse complex we had really good little machines and tricks and knowledge and systems and techniques. We had hybridized animals and seeds, and they all they were all sort of systems of training them and everything else. And then World War One comes along, and you know, all of a sudden, the United States just made law. Everything has to be pasteurized because they saw all the men are going off. You can't have all the workers go and pick up all the dairy and right away deliver it to everybody who wants fresh milk. You actually have to like go. We're going to lose a whole bunch of the workplace. We're going to lose a lot of fuel. We're going to lose a lot of machinery and equipment that's going to be shipped over Europe to a war. We're going to pasteurize everything and store it and distribute it slowly so we won't starve our people here. And you do this, you go, man, that was a good idea. <laughs> and that was 100 years later, and Canada has all these laws, especially Ontario, about raw milk will kill us all. And you're like, no, you fuckhead. I'm not saying stop pasteurizing. No one has ever said that. Even, you know, Michael Schmidt, you know, Michael yeah. Schmidt, the big raw milk advocate, yeah. 
you know, he says some things that are a little more eccentric than that I would put it. But still, he's just talking about having really good testing systems for raw milk and being allowed to sell it. And all the products can come from that quality product. And we're just, and the response from the government is always, if we sold raw milk in the grocery stores, people would die. And it's like, no, no one said that, though. No one said we wanted to, to get rid of pasteurized milk and replace it with raw milk. It was a process. And that's again. We just want access. We just want access. We just want them. If you have enough intelligence to understand what raw milk is and what how the difference is, and you want to do something special with it, because as soon as you pasteurize milk, you it cut out a bunch of the things that we've done. And everyone centuries. in my fa- everyone in my family grew up drinking raw milk. Yeah, we, I grew up know, we, we we had a poultry farm, and down the road was a dairy farm, we and traded. we traded. Yeah. And we all grew up with a mason jar of milk in the fridge, settling out. We take the cream off top for our creme fraiche. We had we had our cream for our coffee, and we had our milk for our cereal. Six of us kids, we drank it our whole life, none of us died. Yeah. Like, because it, it's completely unrealistic concept that that raw milk is going to kill people. And, you know, I mean, when we're talking about the food system today, listeria kills people. Sure. And how many outbreaks of that do we have a year? Right? It's it, it's completely backwards. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of it is, seems to be a regulation thing. We don't know how to handle it, so we're going to say it's going to kill people. Actually, it's all regulation things, but it started in the right place. It's kind of... The, I agree. When you right go reason. back in the story, you know that they settled things out, but what happens is some very small group of people... This isn't the Occupy 1%er argument. This is quite literally, all of a sudden, we set up a system to save and to preserve and to be intelligent about our people and our marketplace and our communities and everything else. And then a very small group of people went, fuck, we made a lot of money off of that. Mm-hmm. And then they set up a bunch of laws so they couldn't switch it back or anything else. And so it was the right thing to do for everyone, and then a small group of people screwed it. And, that's, and it goes on. I mean, Cargill is a family-owned beef company that owns a measurable percentage and controls, I should say, a measurable percentage of the world's salt. And, and so the power in that means that there's a bunch of stuff that goes on internationally and, and, and at high levels of government because these people are worth hundreds of billions, well, these industries are worth hundreds of billions of dollars into the trillions. And you could do is sit in front of a bunch of politicians and say, well, I'll just take all my business to another state or another country or something else. I can manufacture it anywhere. I can employ thousands of people in Bolivia if you don't want to do it here. And they scrabble around and they give these guys whatever they want. And and no one ever considers, well, if they went to Bolivia, someone else would take over the local farm systems and the local distribution systems and the local everything else. And they probably, because they're far away, people would logically buy from the people that they already knew. Local is not a... I get into a room with people who are about international law or trade or things like that. And they always go, why are you against free trade? And I'm like, did I say I was against free trade? Did I say I was against trading goods in any way? What I said is it, you should be buying from your own community first and then from a close by community and then outward. And what's cool is when you're done with all that, there'll be a surplus of something that you can trade with another country. Instead of all the fake shit that was set up, where we would take all of our foods from southern Ontario and sell them in Cleveland and Chicago for a premium price, because it was Ontario produce. In Ontario, we'd buy stuff from upstate New York. And then they would just they would just switch locations and say it was premium. And you're like, well, somebody made money off of that. 
But that, that didn't make sense. It doesn't really stabilize anything. When one of those marketplaces fall and something happens when when prices of transportation go up or whatever, it destabilizes. What I'm talking about actually is the most logical way of stabilizing marketplaces so that they can link up and you can actually do more trade in a logical way instead of forced by someone else sort of configuring it around their best interest. If you leave markets for themselves to some extent to follow logical paths, they set into logical paths that are sustainable. And if you keep manipulating it, you make it so it's unsustainable. Quota systems, trade tariffs, all that stuff mostly just cause problems somewhere else. Great where you are, but you fucked someplace two thousand miles away. And so, if anything, it's the opposite. I actually believe what I'm talking about strengthens trade and international trade. It's hard row to hoe with uh, a lot of people because they just see. Well, I have a friend who's a broker, and so he makes a ton of money just by standing there going, right, and he keeps a piece. And so, there's a lot of people who just don't want that stuff to move around because they get a piece of it. But that's not a legitimate portion of the populace that's making their living off of that piece. That that's a justifiable reason to keep it that way. And what's funny is if you just change it around, there would still be trade. It would just change what was being traded, and that guy would still make money. It, it's, it's ignorance that drives most fear, as we all know. And it's, there's just vast amounts of ignorance about the food systems because. For one really good reason, since the 19, late 60s, we stopped teaching people in early childhood education what food comes from and um, how to cook. If you can't, if you don't know where food comes from, you don't know what food is, you don't know how to combine it, you don't know what it should cost, and you don't know when it's good or when it's bad. And if you don't know how to cook, now you haven't got a clue or even any entree into the process, so you're actually at the mercy of a food processor. And guess where the most risk for, for poisoning vast amounts of people, for having big divots in our food system where people could starve is by having processed food. food. As soon as you touch food, as soon as you touch it, take it out of its natural state, do something to it, and then try and stabilize it some way to store it, you actually add huge amounts of risk, including milk. Mm -hmm. and, and, but but everyone always says, well, it's so much safer in a can. <laughs> no, this can. No, the food in that can, it's safe. <laughs> because that batch was good. But what about all those lines that come off that we don't hear about that they go, because everything is labbed. And there's a huge amounts of stuff that's labbed that doesn't make lab and it gets dumped again. Well, you're talking about MAC. And even if you're vigilant and dump it every time it's bad, we already know from the marketplace that it gets through. How many poisonings and recalls have there been on processed meats and ground beef and, and dairy products and processed foods over the years since you've been paying attention? It's in the hundreds of millions of units mm -hmm. of food things. And sooner or later, that's going to get sloppier and worse and more people are going to die. And the bigger it gets, the worse it becomes. That's just math. I mean, all the studies are there. I mean, small pro, small laboratories, small processors have a much lower risk rate, but right. yet, because the quota systems, and it's all tied directly to the quota systems, they're shutting down the small laboratories because they don't want the, the chicken producers, don't want these small little independent guys raising birds, processing birds, right. and they're blaming it on food safety. But it has nothing to do with food safety. Zero. And, and the, the studies are there to prove that 
that the bacterial content on small, small, small processed poultry lots is drastically lower yeah. than mass produced. But yet they blame it on food safety as to why they're shutting these small these small processors down. Yeah, chickens have always been uh, susceptible to salmonella, right? Yeah. <laughs> but where is salmonella endemic and basically just there is in huge poultry operations? In the plant. It's in the plant. It's, mm -hmm. it's not in the genetics of the bird. And so the smaller the operation, the easier to clean, the easier to, to turn everything over, the more likely you're having a sick bird. It's possible to have a bird that doesn't, you could, if all things being properly done, you can have chicken tartar. <laughs> I mean, I'm not really jonesing for chicken tartar. I'm just saying part of the risk that we put under our systems is how we devise our systems. It's not the food itself. It's us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got in a conversation with the Minister of Agriculture in Massachusetts about this whole thing. He was going on giving a lecture about food security in the state of Massachusetts and how they want to make sure that they're a little more sustainable. They've realized... Magically, how they now just realized that they have no ability to process their small farm meats. So they were talking about statewide portable outdoors. So they would go around and work for these. And it's like, okay, so I had to stand up and ask. It was like, are, are, are you kidding me now? Like, you've just woken up to the fact that you had, 50 years ago, you had 50 independent beef processors in the U.S. And now you have less than six. Mm -hmm. And now you're saying that we need to fix this mm -hmm. and supply our, you know, the people in our state the ability to process their own small crops. So it's like, that's all well and fun. That's great. The state's going to get behind that. But how are you going to get by big corporate? Because they control the quota system. They control the yes or no. You, you have no control over saying yes or no. Mm -hmm. So it's a great idea. Unfortunately, politically, you'll never get it done. Exactly. It'll yeah. never, ever happen. It won't happen. You know, there's a good example of that here in Canada. There's some local Toronto families who have bought land about 5,000 acres, apparently, in Saskatchewan. I will keep the names of the stuff out of this. Sorry, but... Um, and they were telling me this whole story because their idea was they want to do grass and pasture-finished beef. Right. Not grass-fed. I didn't mean you know what I'm talking yeah. about. But, but this is a different thing altogether. It would change the size and the conformation of the animals in the end, the fat... Content on them would be lower. They would be more expensive but exponentially once you get into a big production like that. So they're saying all the stuff I wanted to hear. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Cross pasture paint. What are you going to do in the winter? Well, we're going to grow haylage and store it, and we're actually going to have a greenhouse, and we're going to grow microgreens, you know, for high nutrients, so they're fresh through the winter as well as part of their diet with the haylage and, the, and everything else. There's no corn. There's no grains. It will always be uh, hay or fresh greens, grass, and they'll be out in the sun. On the pasture as much as they possibly can be. He's like, great. And I'm sitting there nodding, going, but you guys are fucked because, because in Canada, all the abattoirs in the West are controlled by IDP and Cardinal. Right. And they'll go, good guys, come on. And then they're like, oh, sorry, we're really busy. We can't let you in. You can't, we can't process your animals today. Oh, we can't process them next week either. Oh, I don't think we're going to be able to process for a couple months. Um, you guys will be okay. All right, hey, fuck off. They'll drive them out of business. They will just, because that's the pin, every business industry, every every process has a pinch point. And the pinch point is you can buy all the cattle you want, you can buy all the land you want, you can feed them and do whatever you want with them, but try and get them processed and inspected and into the marketplace without an abattoir. And right. so I started like panicking and they're like, oh no, no, we bought an abattoir, we're tooling it up and 
we'll control our own. I'm just like, I'll be able to get this beef. I actually, when they, as soon as they said, we'll have our, our own abattoir, that was the actual key for me to realize, oh, I will actually be able to get this beef. It's not just bullshit. You got, mm-hmm. you've done all your work around the, the product itself, and you've done it all around the processing of it too, which just means you guys are smart. You'll be safe. It's good. That's, but what's funny about that is, is that, in a way, they leapfrog backwards to come into the modern age. They had to go back and start where where these processes would have started in the fifties. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's that's essentially what is required now. We have, have to, to go backwards. We have to go backwards and delete a bunch of stuff that we did since the World Wars because as much as they were necessary then, they are completely and utterly redundant now. And and I my favorite two examples is. Is the first one is so you want to farm, so you have land. Uh, you got some ideas of what you want, but you have no idea how to make money as a farmer. Well, guess what? This fine, fine, fine thing called a computer, you get to like basically do research on several streams of farming, you know, cash cropping, market gardening, animal husbandry, and all these different things. But you can also go in and find all the buy prices. All the all the sell prices and all the projected sell prices into the future and all the buy prices in the past. So future and past are all documented. You can follow the charts. If you're smart, you can go, if I buy this at this point, plant it, I can sell it for this point, this is what it'll cost. So you don't have to you don't have to you don't have to have a hoe or a shovel in the ground to actually do all your planning. Can you imagine hundred years ago that resource? Fuck you'd be planting what you know grows on that piece of ground. Mm-hmm. Now you can have that lab and find out everything that can grow and then go onto a computer and find out everything you can make money from that list of things that can grow on that soil. And that's, that does that cost? Everybody owns one of those already. So, so all that stuff we've done for up to the Edwardian period of farming, suddenly we have this, we have this resource that can pull all that up. Now, there's a lot of elder knowledge that's been lost, but it's also been gathered by people like... Uh, Elliot Coleman, who does all those organic uh, farming books, or mm-hmm. in locally David Kohlmeyer, who has, um, you know, back in the late 60s and the rest of time, he hooked up with, um, uh, what's her name, in, in Berkeley, California, the uh, chef, restaurateur. Oh, um, Field of Green. Um, I know you're talking about. She's still very active in her restaurants, but no. Sorry, Seminole Restaurant. Stupid person not remembering the name doesn't matter, but I mean, carrying on traditions and, and a lot of new techniques that actually res- resemble old techniques. But guess what? The other most powerful farming tool would be it, right now would be again the computer. But even 20 years ago, 10 years ago, you basically couldn't do anything without buying a lot of heavy machinery, right? You need tractors and uh, maybe combines. You'd need a lot of gear to get that stuff into a field and back out to sell. You'd need dryers and elevators and everything else if you have corn or any kinds of grains like that. Because they won't pick it up and buy it until you've got it at the right humidity and everything. Kijiji. <laughs> like, you can go onto, these, onto, onto the internet and just go, can I borrow? looking to rent a piece of equipment for two weeks or a week or a day or something instead of having to go to the bank and borrow half a million dollars to do it. Because essentially farmers were, were, I mean, 
the nice word sharecroppers for the bank, but I mean, in a lot of ways, slaves to the bank, because the bank would happily go, well, you've got a couple hundred acres. And then, uh, so we have the mortgage on that, and we're going to own all the equipment you have as well. Now, over time, that didn't work out so well. It's not ideal for the bank, because they don't feel they can flip it back out and sell it. But I mean, in the 60s and 70s, that was a great way to control land and control people and control machinery and tap into the industries because you're dealing with the manufacturers. It's, it's, it was very much a bank-controlled and a, a government-controlled thing. You, as soon as you get off of that gravy train, that was Rob Ford, as soon as you get off of that sort of cycle, you have to do way more work. You have to do all your own research. You have to probably hire everybody. You have to learn what's going on. It's really hard. Except, what did I describe there? I described your own destiny. <laughs> you actually, instead of um, being told by the local uh, farm depot that you need to, on, on April 27th, you need to plant this varietal of uh, patented Roundup Ready seed with this inoculant, spray these pesticides, herbicides, put these fertilizer inputs in, and by this date in September, you'll be taking it out, and this is what we'll pay you. And for your 300 acres, we're going to pay you $43,000. And these, these guys would go, okay, cool, so I have all this land, I'm going to make $43,000 at the end of it. You're going to do all the work. You're going to plant it, you're going to harvest it, everything from the farm depot, and they hand you a check. And you go, cool, so I'll go get a job in the post here in the steel mill or or some, a job somewhere else. And so everyone who owns a farm, and farms that are growing all these cash crops that are GMO-based, don't even farm their own land. The farm people farms 25,000 acres, and all these farmers work somewhere else. And so who's making all the money, really? Sure, they get to buy a new pickup truck and a flat-screen TV with that check every year, and they still have the money to pay for their mortgage and their, buy their kids' clothes and everything else. But that's still... You're basically just giving away your land because they're killing it. So the, the, the value of the land is going down because they're just inputting the shit out of it and leaving the soil dead. You're getting a minimum amount from it and you're placated. And all the knowledge and all the skill and all of the populace that would ever understand how to perpetuate this is just slowly dying off and going away. And you're left with a really rich farm depot a really rich system, a whole bunch of processed food, and soon no land or nobody to farm it. The land would just be that desolate shit that's left. And you can look at soil. You can look at soil that's been, you know, green manured and left to grow and tilled and cultivated so that it's full of rich carbon um, and mycelium life and everything's growing. And you can basically pluck anything in that and it will grow. Or you can go and look at a farm that's been sprayed with Roundup and all that input, and it's like, it's like sand, it's dirt. This is soil, and where they, and, and it's, it's a lot like, what we do now is a lot like, um, what's it called, not, not aquaculture, but what's it called when you just basically put a bunch of nutrients on a tray and throw seeds in there and they grow? I mean, all they're doing is using this dead sort of sandy stuff as a medium, and they just put all the nutrient in, and they put the plant in, and they just grow it as quick as they can and get it out. Mm -hmm. And whatever's left over in the soil just washes into the waterways and fucks everything else up. So you get a 600% yield on your corn, and fuck everything else in the lake of that whole process. It's just, 
and, and the farmer doesn't know the guy who lives on that land doesn't realize that he's doing that and work and farmers took the brunt of all that use of all these chemicals on their lands and washing in the waterways and fucked up the fish and the lakes and killed them that and, that and it had nothing to do with them they didn't even know they were doing it so do you see a change in well see I see changes I do see changes, but I don't see changes as rapidly as I think we should be seeing, but I have hope. I mean, I've had many farmers tell me that they were conventional farmers for years and then just got disgusted. I mean, the most obvious is, is guys who do a lot of livestock, especially pork and beef, um, where they had to go around. They, they basically had a pack of needles and there'd be an antibiotic. And... Um, and growth hormones, and, and they would just go around and just hit every animal. And by the time they hit every animal, they'd go around and do it again. That was their entire job, just pumping the animals with chemicals. And no one understands that if you feed an animal antibiotics, it actually ups its appetite and it gains more weight. It's not a healthy gain, and it's not a good way of doing it, but they grow faster. So, so prophylactic use, all you gotta do is give a, a farmer some chemical, have them use it, and have them see it go bigger than he did last time, and then he uses twice as much. That's the other story you get, is that they think by putting more on, it'll grow bigger. They'll get more yield. It'll grow faster, whether you're talking about an animal or a vegetable. So the science of all this is also way more exact than we use it, hence the resistance to antibiotics we have, problems with hormones that are flushing into the, into the milk and the foods we have. You know, the dairy board says, that, oh, there's no hormones. Yeah, there is. And um, it's just essentially a really, really kind of blind process where somebody's driving it and making money off it, but everyone else thinks it's this whole community of people doing it, and they don't even know they're not doing it. It's frustrating. Every one of those guys who just threw the needle pack away tell all these wonderful stories about all of a sudden they started, first of all, making money. You know, they still have to buy the livestock. They didn't have to buy all the antibiotics. They have to buy all the growth hormones. They didn't have to buy all the patented seed. They didn't have to uh, follow any regimen. And they didn't even have to hit any specific weights, right? Because it's a different marketplace. So mm -hmm. the criteria and the standards and the specifications change completely. Because you go into a way smaller market. So one animal's huge, one animal's small. In a small abattoir, they go... We're going to kill the animals, strip it, and, and, and put it on the fab floor and break it into pieces. If the strip one's that big or the strip one's that big, I, they don't care. It, it, uh, you know, High River, they get pit, everything's exactly the same size. They want every animal the same size, and they strain them so that they're mostly the same size as they go through the cycle. And so you get into this thing where people are actually learning that they're going to make money, and that's the story that keeps starting to fold outward, and more and more people are going, you made more money and, and you're like farming and you're enjoying it and that's the net net the only downside is it's a hell of a lot of work you might work seven days a week for months on end um except the thing is you're in control of your own destiny destiny you're outside it's healthy you're not using any of these chemicals you're making a better product there's there's got to be something that is measurable in that if it's only just joy right I mean, if money's the only measure, it's working. But the rest of it isn't so easily measurable, but it's definitely on the table. It's that pride of uh, an integrity of, 
of control of yourself and your destiny and the product you put on the table. Every artisanal producer is is way more likely to say, try this, it's really good. You know, grocery store, you know those people that stand in grocery stores and sell, give away samples? They're like, well, I try a rich coffee, I can't. And you go, no thanks, and they go, okay. They go to a farmer's market and someone has got something they just made, and they go, try this. And you go, uh, they go, oh, seriously, please try this, this is really good. I really want you to try this. I think you really like this. They, they're proud of it. They believe. All that stuff. I, I don't even mean, oh, that means the product's better. I mean, living that lifestyle gives you a hell of a lot better pride of who the hell you are and what you do. And I've always, so I, if you pivot on that, that's what life is supposed to be about. Then you go to this industry, <laughs> the products are always better. So I, I can't help but just get behind that. It's an easy, obvious choice to support. Every time, every time a guy shows up and goes, this is what I have, this is all I do, but this is what I have. Whether it's a handful of currants or sausage, right? It could be anything. First of all, my instinct is I'm going to try that because he cares so much about it. I'm, I don't think I've ever been let down. In fact, that's probably the measure. The day a whole bunch of flaky people show up who really believe their products are great and it's actually mediocre or less, but they're actually making it in front of themselves, that's when we've hit, you know, that's when there's just too many people making that. That'll be a good day. But that's, that'll be the measure is, is that there's just too much to choose from. Right now, you know, I, there's many things I know one person that does well, and when he's gone, I don't know who the fuck's going to do it. So it, it, <clears throat> there's positive changes there, but you, you know, how do how do we fix the core of the problem though? I mean, how do you get rid of the GMO corn? How do you get rid of? I mean, the GMO corn all came, you know, and as you said earlier, I mean, there was a reason for that. There was a reason yeah. for what happened with corn yeah. after after World War, and I mean, that was reasonable. It was reasonable. It was utterly reasonable. It made a crap load of sense to grow high-yielding corn and use it everywhere. It was really stable. It was really safe. It was really smart. Except we've grown out of that, but we can't seem to like get away from it. It's like a bad Klingon date that just won't say take no for an answer. It's like, thank you for the corn. We really appreciate the corn through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, but now how about fuck off? And maybe just go back to letting, I don't know, how about the prairies? Let the prairies be prairies. Because, by the way, every time you tell me, oh, my God, the crop corn, the corn crops failed, and we can't feed people. And you go, you fucking liars. That is not corn that feeds people. You make high fructose corn syrup out of corn, and then the rest of the shit goes into feeding cattle. And if you didn't sell Coca-Cola and corn-fed beef, and just let the gland go fallow, the beef would actually eat better and be healthier. It's really fucking frustrating to listen to these people tell the world that all of this is happening, and know myself standing there listening going, that's not true. You could just let a whole winged load of wild grass blow on your property for free, grow it, feed the cattle on it, and sell the cattle. I'd be thrilled to buy that beef. <laughs> and and that person would make way more money than the corn-fed beef. And I'm sorry, I can live without high fructose corn syrup because, and, and don't, 
don't let me give any impression that I'm like some kind of, uh, uh, you know, pure ring posh, you know, I eat only the, I, you know, I, I have cravings. I'll eat chips and drink a can of ginger ale, you know, but I also know I don't need any of that stuff. And it doesn't really do that much more for my life. And I know that I can always find good made. Of any of the things I want, I can make them. And to answer your question, what's the answer is, is not killing Monsanto and not avoiding the big grocery stores and not even, not even blaming any big company. It's quite really the first place is just early childhood education and food and the basics of cooking. And then by the time those people understand enough about food to be able to buy decent fresh food and cook it for themselves and their families, which is really not very hard and does not take any more fucking time, despite what every television commercial tells you, um, then you have people in grocery stores voting with their dollars. And right. so they're doing mm -hmm. that thing, that Raj Patel thing, buying everything from the outside aisles and nothing in the inside aisles. So they have the information to make the decision. Whereas they now they don't. You can't you can call Gil Weston every name you want, but he only puts he only reorders and puts back on the shelf that crappy processed food when someone walks out of the store with one. Right, because they're buying it. Because they're buying it. So is that his fault that you bought a can of Alpha Gettys and he bought another one and put it back on the shelf? No, and he, he you know, he's no different than you or I. That's right. I mean, he's a capitalist at heart. The only the only problem is is we're you know as a system we're not we're not educating the current generation. They don't know the difference between good food and bad. That's education. It's not go and tell Galen Weston to do something else. It's it's educating everybody else, and he'll follow right along. He's happily. Oh, you want me to buy more fresh produce? Sure. Okay. He doesn't care. You want me to buy more Ontario apples instead of upstate New York apples? Okay. He's in. There's no price difference for him. He just needs to be told. Monsanto is a different story. I mean, I believe that the legislation, the laws that have gone through that have got to, someone's going to have to step up. And step well, up. I mean, patenting it, seeds is evil. Yeah, and I mean, you know, let I mean, history will repeat itself. I mean, no different than big tobacco years ago. Know. You know, they they eventually got shut down. They eventually lost their power. They eventually enough people got fed up, and the same thing is going to happen again. That was loopholes in the system. It got through. Again, capitalist society, they capitalized on it. Now it's just going too far. And eventually it will fall. I really do believe that it, there's examples through history of that. I think corn, um, the whole corn banks, the dumping of massive tonnage of corn every year and still paying for it. Um, the paying for dumping of dairy in, in the U.S., um, the, the feeding of manure to cattle as diet in the, like all that's got to stop eventually. Wow. But you know, people don't know. They have no idea that this is an acceptable practice to be done. It's okay to do this. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's okay to feed shit to cows. I don't think it's okay to feed sheep to cows. Right? right? You know, like, it's, you know, there's... Oh, that's there's right. That caused a huge worldwide problem by feeding sheep to cows. Yes. And, yeah. and guess whose fault that was? That wasn't... The, there was no farmer who thought that was a great idea. A, a farmer's base instinct is to do exactly what the animal wants. That was yeah. something that was forced down the chain. Yeah. 
And I mean, all that, I mean, does eventually change. But I mean, I, I agree with you. It's not, I don't think really the problem is at the corporate level. I think the problem is, you know, very valid points at the education system. It's not there anymore. My kids aren't getting taught about it at Nothing. all. And they do like one class in one semester about healthy eating. And I have and a favorite story I was told about that. Is like when we, when Cheryl, my wife, went to first get our first little batch of laying hens, which is, you know, as you know, day-olds come to the local farm depot in a box. They were born last night. They're shipped first thing in the morning, and they arrive at the farm depot, and they're at the counter, and they're in a stack on the counter, and your little box is in there, and, and you, sh- you have to arrive by 8 a.m. to get your birds, and you have to take good care of them. So Cheryl got there, went down an aisle to get a feeder and a heat lamp and stuff, and two women walked in behind her, and, and were just standing at the counter, and they say the woman behind the counter, What's that sound? Like a stack of boxes is going, and the, and the woman says, chicken. And they go, what do you mean? And she says, you know, for eggs and for the freezer. And the woman goes, well, what do you mean for the freezer? And she says, for meat. And the woman says, what kind of meat? <laughs> she didn't get that a chick grew into a chicken, and that was what her boneless, skinless, sauce on the side chicken breast was like she had no idea this these two women had no idea where chicken came from they were like it comes from bird it's just like and and all you realize is that oh my god i gotta go ask some other people and you realize people really don't know stuff about where food comes from at all I, my most recent one was, I was standing there talking to a gentleman, and I said, yeah, let's, he said, you know, how's all this, all these trends going on? And he said, you know, I suit that because I'm happy to cook whatever somebody wants. So if somebody comes in and says they don't want to eat gluten, I don't care whether they're celiac or they just don't want gluten. I don't care. I can just leave the grains out. It's easy. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I don't even know if I believe that whole gluten thing. I don't think it exists. No, gluten exists. It's not even up for debate. Gluten is a, you, know, you start going, it's a protein. It's, and you're like, fuck, you have no idea. Like, yeah, this guy didn't know. He thought that that was all just a ruse made up by somebody. Okay, so is the gluten thing that we're going through right now overblown? Sure. Do I sort of look at it like this? If more people look up what gluten is, that's just another one of cohort of people that are educated themselves on what that is. Like, I'd rather people argue about it and then learn about it than just go quietly through life thinking that it may or may not exist or it may or may not affect them. You know, it does affect you. Sometimes it's tasty, <laughs> gives you energy. You know, what the hell? It's not, uh, I have food allergies to nuts, right? And, and there's the other thing there is that there's this whole sort of whingy, that's the thing that does piss generally people off is that thing where they go, how dare you bring those near me? And, and I'm one of those people, like, I grew up with it. And I was born in an age when if I had a food allergy, people were like, I don't fucking care if you have a food allergy. And so I learned that was my responsibility. My mother made, told me, this, you have to be careful. Ask what's in the food. Ask where it came from. How was it prepared? Oh, that's the lead up to being a chef right there. Mm-hmm. And so that's early childhood education. She said, you should know what's in your food so you don't die. And so, okay, Mom. Okay, no problem. Mom. I'll so, do that. So I did. And how did, what did I end up doing? I ended up, I think it's an extreme example, but I ended up being a cook because I just, whenever, 
I knew how to code, you know, I knew, I didn't know, I wasn't formally trained, I didn't know the terminology, the jargon, I didn't know what it was like to be on a, you know, on your feet for hours on end, preparing different things, but I knew what food was, and I grew up in Norfolk County, and Southern Ontario, it was just a farm, rich place in a fishing village, so, you know, you just see all of that stuff, my father grew I worked in a floral supply, so I worked in greenhouses. We, we had a fishing village that I grew up in, and it was surrounded by rich farmland. <laughs> so, you know, I just naturally grew up eating from the farm gate anyway, just because that's it. And so, has that fed into what I believe? Yeah, but it's not because it's trendy, and it's not because uh, it's stylistic that I, I... I don't know any other way. I, I started going down that molecular astronomy thing because... I had the, the nitrogen tanks ordered, and I was already playing with all the chemicals and everything to, you know, the uh, magnesium chloride and the, all those things for making the all the little dots and foams and gels and everything. And I realized this is interesting. I, I really find this all really interesting as well. But but I don't. I didn't want to keep going down that path where I was getting farther and farther away from the food and the farm. And getting into the chemistry set, which I still respect. I'm not a huge. I, I think it's more entertainment and more show than it is um, just dining, but that's still legitimate. But I just, I just one day just went. No, I think I'll just stick with the food because one of the things I've learned about it is the better I buy, the better ingredients I buy, the easier it is for me to tell somebody what to do with it because they do less to it. A slice of tomato, drizzle some good olive oil, a little bit of salt, give it to them. Don't do anything else. Um, uh, you know, and you get more and more layers of technique and cooking on top of that. But somewhere in there, my favorite things to eat were the things that you picked up while you were standing in the field. Just left as low as, like, as, what's the best fish you've ever had? It's probably a shore lunch, right? Mm -hmm. Because like the best corn I've ever had is the corn I used to eat right off the stalk when I picked it as a kid. Yeah. Because I would pick corn like sugar catch. Yeah. And I was just unbelievable. And you can't duplicate that. No. Um, the tomatoes off the vine, as you're just saying, and the, you know. And the only way you get that is by knowing what a tomato should taste like. Yeah. So it's kind of hard for us to, you know, most people who buy tomatoes in a grocery store think tomatoes are woody and tasteless and not very red. Yeah, I don't like tomatoes. Or, you know, even red, for that matter. Yeah, you, you've never had one. There's so many different types of tomato, too, that you just never got to experience. But, I mean, it seems to be with all, all food. You know, look, look what's happened with apples. I mean, there's, there's another prime example. I mean, apples don't taste like apples I grew up with as a kid. Well, I grew up, the end of town was four feet from my back door and that's where a farm was and they're all down there the laneway where every varietal apple tree they were they were planting probably at the end of the like in the late 1800s that's when those trees were planted and then probably propagated and replanted sometime because these trees were huge at the base and gnarled and and really really old my brother and i gathered a pickup truck load of that stuff and pressed it and he made cider when Mentor mm -hmm. in a barrel. They were tasty. <laughs> it's a rough winter. Oh, but but uh, 
But yeah, those apples, I, I mean, I lived, I grew up in, actually in a pear tree, in a, in a little gully off of that lane. We like sat in this huge pear tree when they were ripe. Age. But I mean, spent so much time in between a willow tree where my fort was, the pear tree that was like three lots down, or all those apple trees along that laneway, or all these wild grapes had grown up into them and everything else. But those apples covered with little bug spots and gnarly and misshapen, and they were so delicious. Yeah, best apples ever. Yeah. Uh, we, I do believe, see, there's a fear that all that knowledge and all that uh, biodiversity is, is lost. But the thing is, it might be. But it's not so much that we can't get it back. It's that we're not sure how to get it back. It's, it's not the doing. It's the getting around to doing it that's the problem right now. Because well, nobody's... Okay, so you know the story about how, well, we have to feed the world. Well, you look, like, just lift the carpet up a little bit and realize we're not feeding the world at all. The stuff when people say that isn't even remotely true. And in fact, when you start talking about India and Africa, typical places where we've always said people were starving, even though no one ever bothered to go downtown and look around and realize they're starving right here too, um, is that they go, and we fixed it. We gave them corn. We taught them how to grow corn. And we, like, you know, we took away all of their legumes that actually fixed nitrogen in the soil, allowed them to grow other things. And that was their main staple of their diet. Corn is no fucking nutrition, you twat. You took away their beans and gave them nothing except yeah. they grew really well. One, one, one acre in India was sustaining... Like six communal based families or something, somewhere along, I can't remember the exact stats, but once I added corn into it, the one acre corn wouldn't even sustain one human being. That's right. Corn is so we what so great. We gave them corn and we killed Ooh. six more families. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, but we got corn. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. It's not even that kind of corn. Like, that's that's the thing. Everyone talks, it's not, it's hominy, it's a, it's a kind type of corn that's used in industrial purposes it's not for feeding people it's for feeding the animals and the systems that feed people and it doesn't do it very well we gotta knock it off and and then oh let's go into you know some of the we touched on this thing called the diets and trends and stuff you know i have some very very good friends who are vegan and their attitude is we just want to eat this stuff and my response is cool i have no problem cooking for you and then you start hearing people like, well, how can you eat things with a face? And I always, so for a while, I would just say, well, I'm an omnivore, and, you know, that's what I believe in. But I didn't realize, yeah, that I'm sourcing the animals from a better place. So what's weird is you realize, and I, I'm not saying this is an argument against vegetarian and veganism. I'm saying it's an argument against whinging about it because... When you're a vegetarian, you say you don't eat animals because of the cruelty in animals. I turn around and say, actually, if you ate ethically raised animals, you would, no actually, you would go way farther to stopping the cruelty to animals. Because you support a marketplace, it's that vote thing again. They stand there and they go, our market share went down to that company that does all that weird letting them live outside on the pasture stuff. And that's what everyone will migrate to. Yeah, I, and I guess that comes to, you know, education as well. I mean, I, I have sure. no issues that people want, you know, I mean, somewhere in my rush, people want to eat veg, vegetarian diet, that's great. People want to eat vegan diet, that's great. But don't tell me the truth about the food industry because, you're, right. because you've chosen to be vegan. I mean, 
sure, I mean, you think it's all about cruelty to animals, but what about those small children in the fields in Peru that you're killing? You're okay with that. Yeah. Like, oh. you know, David Chang said best. I mean, you're completely oblivious to how many actual small children are dying so you can eat that way yeah. because it's next to impossible to eat it in a North American bar. You would die if you ate a strict vegan diet in North America. It's next to impossible because we do not produce enough protein within our area that you could actually live off that. Um, it would be very, very difficult. So you need to outsource to other countries that do not have the protective environment that we, that we have around labor. Um, you know, it's, if you're doing it for, you know, for health reasons and that's what you choose, that's fine, but don't, don't lecture about it. Um, you know, there, there's always, there's always other ways, you know, there's, you know, you, there's always different answers. There's always other ways to, you know, and choices. We all make our choices, but don't, you know, not one's right or wrong. Right. I mean, okay, so go to the um, thing where, let's see, where people talk about how they know all about food. Well, because I've eaten three meals a day, I'm 50 years old. I'm 52, so we're the same age. So let's see, and I've eaten the same amount of meals as you, so on that sense, we're equal. So if that's your saying that we're equal, that you know about food as much as I do because you've eaten it, here's where it changes. I, I've got three years of college. I've staged in several other countries. I've purchased hundreds of millions of dollars worth of food, and I've fed over 20 million people. Who's responsible for feeding 20 million people over that? And across hot dog vendors, uh like black tie affairs for the captains of the industry and billionaires and everything in between. I've done nutrition for professional athletes, people who just had weird peccadillos, every possible scenario. And all of that comes with techniques and science and nutrition, chemistry, complications, storage issues, transportation issues, all kinds of equipment. But you know exactly what I do because you've eaten food. But you just want to punch people in the face very often because, you know, who was it Malcolm Gladwell who said that 10,000 hours of something makes you an expert? Mm -hmm. Okay, so 10,000 hours is, correct me if I'm wrong, that's uh, five years because 2,000 hours a year is essentially a work number of hours people work. For most people, not No, no, not, not, not us. But no, let's just go yeah. by their numbers, yeah. right? Yeah. So I've done this for 30 years, so that makes me six times a freaking food expert. Like six times of those 10,000 hours I put into this. And then I didn't just do that working in a kitchen. I went out and worked in, in farms and all different aspects of farms, and then interviewed all the different people. And then I've worked in processing, and I've done processing, and I've studied distribution and done distribution. And then I went out and interviewed a whole bunch of sociologists and anthropologists, entomologists, and genetic engineers. So I can understand it better via a documentary, admittedly. But, and, and you gather all this stuff up, and then you just keep doing it, and then you look, and you try, and you experiment, and you talk, and you talk to farmers and everything else. And by the time you're doing all this, two things happen. One, you come down to this thing, conclusion that the system's broken, the solution is early childhood education, and that, and that there's hope. So the end of all of this stuff that we're talking about is so dark. I really do believe there's hope because um, people want to celebrate, number one, and they like to be entertained. 
So if we can just educate them on what the best food to have while they're being, and we are in the entertainment industry, right? I mean, people don't go to a restaurant just to like slap down a bowl of gruel and go home. They come out to be with other people and be in that atmosphere and be entertained. Oh, and to eat. It's just that the more people know about eating, the more what we do will become, uh, let's just call it fun. <laughs> because some days, you know, you walk out of a restaurant and you're angry because people are complaining about how expensive it is, how long it took to come to them, and, uh, uh, you know, just a whole list of, of complaints. I must admit, I'm lucky. Most people get up and say, wow, like today we had two people say that the tortilla was the best thing they've ever eaten in their life. <laughs> we had to do this. Okay, that's cool. Thanks very much. You should get out more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but thank you. But no, it's always nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, after, you know, it's, we're, we've both been in it for a lot of years now. Um, you, you still you still have that joy, that the whole reason you got into it? Um, even now, or does it feel like... Well, yeah. cooking still has that joy, for sure. Uh, especially if you're feeding friends and people that, that are, I guess, paying attention. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, family is always a big one. But, you know, when you are when you have a group, and uh, you know, every once in a while people say, I'm coming for, are you going to be there? I'd really like to be, be there. And, and some of them was like, okay, I run a business. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not just like a valet or a butler. I don't just, you know special job of ironing your jacket I trained everybody in the restaurant if they can't do what I can do for you that I did a bad job in the first place they're supposed to be able to replicate whatever my hands and brain put into into play for them to do but on the other hand that's part of the entertainment yeah, yeah 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 and so on the other hand you go okay well they would it'd be just as good but I'll come and we'll play mm -hmm. right and then I'll I get to like improvise and do like the, the part that I love which is the jazz of improvisation stuff, whether it was music or food, I'd prefer not to replicate the same thing over and over again. I mean, the yield rule from the 1970s of the food industry was be consistent, always be the same. And my response to that was, how about go fuck yourself? You're supposed to always be good. It's supposed to be consistently good, not consistently exactly the same thing. <laughs> my favorite example of that is, is the person that comes for the chicken I love your chicken I don't know what you do it's so different than everybody else I, I come for your chicken and then very often not now because I've got an organic chicken supplier but I was using only Mennonite chicken for all this time so in the winter time there wasn't any so I actually took chicken off the menu so two things happen. people go this isn't even a restaurant if you don't have chicken on the menu because <laughs> it's like well, you have to have chicken on the menu to be a restaurant for some fucked up reason. When then, but they'd sit down. They go, "Well, you don't have the chicken," and I'd say, "No, no, no. But we got lots of other stuff." And they'd say, "But I like the chicken." And you always want to say, "If you like the chicken so much, has it never occurred to you that perhaps it's like the style, else? the technique, the quality, the integrity, the, the training that we put into all that stuff? Maybe the flavors will translate to another dish that you might like." There is a real resistance that I never understood about change because I like improvisation. Mm -hmm. So th that is definitely a personality trait that I'm not saying everyone has to like, but somewhere in there, if you look at my menu, you can kind of see, like, I change it all the time. 
they have a communal thing that's literally based on improvisation. And there's way more of a joy. I don't know what those people do when they go to somebody else's house for dinner. Like you go to a dinner party or go home to mom's for Thanksgiving and if she doesn't cook exactly what you want, what do you do, get up and leave? Like if I go to somebody's house, I eat what's put in front of me. So if I go to somebody's restaurant, you know, okay, this might be different because I'm a chef and, and I'll, I'll know the chef, or the, you know, or we at least know that we're each in the same business. But I won't say, okay, here's what I want you to cook for. You never do that. I would never do that. You go, or whatever you want. I'll be happy to try. I'm allergic to peanuts, just so you know. But other than that, go do whatever you want. Exactly. I mean, I'm just more than happy to have somebody cook for me, you know, after doing it all week. <laughs> That's right. But I mean, this is, I mean, where you are now, I mean, with everything, this is a, this is like Cafe Belong is a big departure from what you've done in the past. Yes, but, I know. It's but, funny. I, mean, I know it's perceived that way. Well, no, but I mean, it's still, your mandate still seems to be the same. Your your desire to you know more knowledge and know more about food and um, be ethical in all those ways you, you know you feel food should be and somewhat educating people about you know just good simple food. I mean after everything we talked about and where you know it, it is a bit of a dark conversation because just because people don't know they perceive it as being a dark conversation when it really isn't. I mean I grew up on a poultry farm. You know, I grew up in farming. I've seen it all. I've seen what it was and what it is now. Um, and, you know, it may seem like a dark conversation, but it's not. It's just reality, and people need to be aware of what the reality is. But for you, I mean, you know, corporate chef of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Um, Ten years. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, that's big, big money. Like, that's, you know, I mean, I, I came, you know, I was in a background. I was with Kara Foods for a long time. Now I'm small, little independent. Um, but, I mean, you know. TV celebrity chef for you for a while. I mean, you know, um, in that now you're in this this green space, you know, off the Danforth in Toronto, like this really unique. Like it's my first time here, so this really unique, cool space that uh, you know you get a lot of you know farmers market next door. You get a lot of people coming by. Um, just it doesn't the food wise, it doesn't seem you know it's just it is it's just another step, another way for you to improvise. Is it? Well, I, actually, to be really a drag, yes. Yeah. Well, that's nice. <laughs> that's the worst answer ever, right? But not really. Well, I mean, I I worked from the from about uh, about eighty four. I started cooking in kitchens eighty three, eighty four. By default, by accident, part time. Didn't even want to do it. Just kept falling back into it. Every time I worked in a kitchen, they'd promote me and say stay, and I'd say I don't, I don't know. <laughs> And then, you know, at 28, in the music business, uh, 26, somewhere around there, uh, 27 years old, I realized, you know, you're an old man in the rock and roll business, right? I know that sounds sad, but, and there's lots of people who have their careers going, but I wasn't set to be a journeyman musician. I wasn't working in a lot of, doing a lot of uh, sessions. I won't play in cover bands. And I, I always worked with other writers and produced and, and things like that. So I wasn't a strong songwriter, but uh, I was a good guitar player and worked with good writers. That's neither here nor there, because that's just what everybody does in the music industry. It wasn't that special. But, you know, by the time you're at a certain age, you realize, okay, I'm either going to, like, buckle down and do this forever or segue into something else. And there was this laying in front of me, this whole cooking thing. I kept going, why, why do I keep... I ended up being a chef everywhere I go, or a sous chef or something. And so I enrolled at George Brown, and again, I didn't really quite get it. 
I was dropped off at the door pronto by an older, like a mature student in my class who was just doing it for fun. Had been paying attention, looked at the ads they were recruiting, found out they were recruiting because McEwen was, was building North 44. He was taking that brigade to North 44. He was getting them to help, you know, paint and do a little bit of stuff. So it was a good thing for the brigade to do to, you know, tile your kitchen. It's, it's legitimate, right? You feel it's more your home and your, and your spot. So, so he took them to do that. I had to build a new brigade at Pronto. So in 1989, I find myself in one of the Seminole restaurants in Toronto. Unbeknownst to me, I had no idea. You know, I couldn't afford to eat at Pronto. I was a musician. So you don't really understand. But my point is, so working, didn't really get it, didn't really like it, but seemed to do well in it. Went to school. School was easy, uh, but didn't really quite, it just didn't click. One day, one shift at Pronto, and I was just smitten. I was just lost in it. I was absolutely, I believe the word is an epiphany. It was amazing. I walked in the door at like noon. Um, I was a bit earlier than anybody else, so I kind of stood there and felt uncomfortable. And then uh, I remember the pastry chef showed up and said, you're with me today. So we do the same one. We go, he goes, come on, come on. Come on. And we, we go through everything in the fridge, took everything out, looked at it all, threw anything away. That, and there wasn't really much in there. I'm like, and, you know, didn't really know how to cook. So you're just like, so where the fuck should we eat here? <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he takes down the, the, the menu board. It was, was a chalkboard like that, right? It's leaning against them. The wall, he puts it down on the counter. He wipes it all off. He goes, so what do you want to make? And I'm like, what? We're going to make all the desserts? From, and you're asking me? And he goes, oh, you know, we always have creme brulee. This is back in the... The, the heyday of creme brulee, right? And uh, classic to, to Pronto was a flourless chocolate tart. With the base was all uh, roasted macadamia nuts with, I remember, uh, an espresso cream. Um, and there was like a fruit pie. I think we made a cheesecake and something else. And then we made every possible color of coulis and creme anglaise, chocolate sauce, and a caramel. And then we had all these little fruits, and we had all these like mint and all this stuff, and cocoa powder, and ice cream sugar, and little shakers, and little shapes, and everything. And so, so we he, we just said we're going to bake this, and he put it back up, and I'm like, and he goes grab a bus pad, and we went down to the basement, and we went shopping, and we gathered the cream and the, the fruit and all the stuff. We didn't come back up and just made everything. And at four, I'm just amazed. We just made six fucking like two dozen of six desserts. And and then he goes, okay, well it's time we'll have something to eat. I'm like, okay. And he sears off a half well the chicken, boneless chicken, and puts on and just like cuts it all up into a little salad, like threw a whole bunch of mescaline on the salad and put this and drained all the juice onto it and then throw a little bit of the vinaigrette on it and we're sitting on a milk crate in the alley. <laughs> like, that's the food I've ever eaten. Like it was so good. And so like this is staff meal, <laughs> and we just made all these rest, all these desserts, and then so the next thing that happens, all the waiters come in and shake everybody's hand. Hey, today, I was like, that was good last night, eh? Oh, and by the way, there's a bottle of Quintarelli Amarone last night that was left behind, like it's a 1978 Quintarelli, and he pours it out, and I'm thinking, what the hell is he doing with that? He's bragging, he's got a bottle of good wine, and he starts saying, this is a 
Pacificant's really critical for whatever buys this thing. He, well, he tells the whole story, and then we all smell it, and we all take a little taste of it. And I'm like, I've been here like five hours, and I'm like getting an education. I've learned how to make pastries. I'm learning about wine. And then, the, and, and the waiters and the cooks all respect each other, and they're talking professionally about what, what did you put in that? How did you, like every other place I've ever worked, it was like, hey, man, did you get laid? Like no one talked about work. They didn't want to be corn. Everyone at Pronto wanted to be there and were proud to be there and worked really hard and were professional. We're tradespeople. I'm not a musician working as a cook. I'm a cook. Fuck you. If you don't want to be a cook, get the hell out. And I'm just like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Like a community, a, a, a trade, a reality, a, a something to like really fight for and, and feel good about doing. So... Service starts, and we go over and start helping make the the salads because everyone, of course, goes to the cold station. So he gets the first hit, that cold station, that we help put all that stuff together. You know, I'm just watching what they do. And then desserts start coming in. And here's the next thing. He, the first order comes in, he makes it. And the next order, he goes, you make it. And so I go, okay. You know, you got to remember, I work for this place. First, so I take the plate down, I make the exact plate that he made. He goes, well, that was good. You made exactly what I did. And I was like, yeah. No, I'm supposed to. He goes, no. He said, why the hell do you think we have all these fruits, all these powders, all these colors, all these sauces, and all this stuff? All this, the menu says that waiter only goes out and says creme brulee. You get to do whatever the crap you want. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, he, so he takes the same plate. I thought he was going to make the same thing again. He goes like this, and he goes, uh, and he just made an entirely different plate, put the same dessert in the middle of it. And, and I... So, you know, for the next six months, I'm on the station, and I'm learning to take two bottles of, of Kool-Aid and <laughs> in there and then shake them and then draw pictures and then and they, all kinds of, and they, you know, went way overboard, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, but I mean, at the end of the first night, you've made everything, and you've helped everybody else. There's a sense of professionalism and camaraderie. You're learning and then you serve all this stuff, and people keep coming back into the kitchen going, wow, and you're looking out the little kitchen door, and guests are getting up and hugging the waiters and shaking their hands and saying thank you, good night. And I get, I used to walk out of there that night, like 1 o'clock in the morning, midnight, whatever, after we scrubbed the place sterile again, and I'm like walking five feet off the ground. I have never experienced anything like that. I never worked so hard, never learned so much, and never felt like it was so entirely justified. And, and I worked there for five freaking years after that, became the chef. And I, so when you get into a big place like the ACC, you bring that with you. You try and bring that joy of work. And I'm talking about Teamsters, man. I had 750 Teamsters reporting to me as director at F&B and restaurants and catering. And, and both at the CN Tower were Canadian auto workers. And at the ACC, when there was a strike basically driven either by the ushering or the the entire was the waiters, the cooks all crossed the picket line to come to work for me because they knew that I wasn't trying to screw them over. I was teaching them. We were a professional pride in what we did, and they learned. And I didn't try and play political games with them. They seemed like that worked. And so by the time 10 years into ACC, you realize, hey, so I've made a lot of money for this big company. I really enjoyed it. I couldn't say enough good things about Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Um, I'm still a Leaf and a Raptor fan. Larry Tannenbaum, the chairman of the board, is one of the most honorable men I've 
And we're all considering he doesn't have to do anything. He keeps his word, and he kept his word to me for 10 years. And you just feel like, I think, if I'm going to legitimately be who I think I am, I have to do this on my own. And I can tell you, it's a thousand times harder than I thought it would be. Uh, I've come to the brink of failure many times, and I, well, I'm about to go into winter, and I'm scared shitless. But I know if I get past this next winter, I'll be all in the clear after this. So I'm really close to the light. It's really hard. And it's worth it. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast for future episodes and follow me on Twitter, at Chef Jason Lynch. All episodes from Straight From The Wine podcast are available on my website, chefjasonlynch.com, where you can also find information about my restaurants and cookbook. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on Twitter or review it on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening.